Hi, my name is Nate. The Old Testament reading is found in 1 Samuel 25, 1 through 3. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. The word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Jonathan, and the New Testament reading comes from Romans 5, 8 through 10. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Gaylene. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading, which is found in Matthew 5, verses 21 to 24. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the, to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So... If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Almighty and gracious God, thank you for your word to us. We ask, Lord, that you'd help us. Help us by your Holy Spirit to see Jesus in the midst of this, this morning. We ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would whisper the very word of God into our hearts. Let it get inside of us so that it doesn't just confront or comfort, but that it would change us. We, in the end, want to be made more like your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray these things in his name. And everybody said, Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, good morning, good morning. My name's Glenn Packiam. I get to serve as the pastor here at New Life Downtown. And this is kind of, we're right around the time of a very auspicious anniversary for us. New Life Downtown is one of six congregations of New Life Church. Uh, it's one church with there's, couple, there's you know six different congregations. There's some things that we kind of share and do together. Our Sundays and sermon series overlap and are in sync. But there's a lot about our life together as a community, how we serve, all of that that is contextualized to each congregation. Well, New Life Downtown, you may know, was the first offsite congregation of New Life Church. So that big blue roof up north was is New Life Classic, New Life Original, New Life the Mother all those wonderful names, and New Life Downtown began in 2012, and you may ask, when in 2012? And I say to you, verily, verily, 
it, our first sort of soft launch was April 1st, which was Palm Sunday in 2012. And our first public service was April 8th, which in 2012 was Easter. So some people say, well, if by the church calendar, our anniversary is still a few weeks away. But if we go by the like calendar calendar, you know, the one that everyone else follows, uh, then, then that would be April 1st or April 8th. And so we figure this Sunday, April 7th, is the time to say, happy 7th anniversary, New Life Downtown. <laughs> Now, I'm curious, how many of you were there those, that first Sunday in the Carter Payne Church on South Weber? Come on, raise it high. I know. Yes. Look at you guys. Amazing. And you're still here, which is amazing. Here we are in Palmer High School running two services, thanking God for all of his faithfulness. We gathered with uh, all of our staff and spouses on Friday night, part-time, full-time, all this stuff. And just we're remembering and reflecting some of the more remarkable uh, examples of God's faithfulness. But all of this is possible uh, because of who you are. You are the church together. You are the people of God together. So thank you for your obedience. Thank you for your faithfulness. Amen. 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 All right. We are in a series called Kingdom and Chaos, and it's a series through the book of 1 Samuel. Now, I don't know how you structure your Bible reading or if you do a structured kind of daily Bible reading, but oftentimes we don't dig through a book in the Old Testament, and so we're committed as a church to about once a year at least or so to do a series that goes through a section of the Old Testament, and so we've covered the Ten Commandments in the last couple of years, we've covered the Psalms, we did the life of Abraham. This book, 1 Samuel, is really about how the Old Testament nation of Israel Israel moves from being a loose sort of tribal federation into becoming a monarchy. But we thought that actually the kind of action that happens in 1 Samuel is so much like a Netflix drama, we thought we'd name it like one. You know, kingdom and chaos, you know. And, uh, and when you think of these stories, they are rather like different episodes that occur in the story. And so far in the story, we find David, who's been anointed king. He's not from the household of Saul, who was the first one who was chosen as king. He was impressive, all this stuff. Had some major problems, demonic activity, anger, rage, all kinds of stuff. And so God says, I've rejected Saul. I'm anointing David, but David is on the run. And, and this is where we find David today, David as a fugitive on the run. If you've got a physical Bible with you, you can turn to 1 Samuel 25. Actually, if you've got a digital Bible, you can scroll and punch that in too, 1 Samuel 25. But as you're doing that, uh, I, I would like to make a confession. I, um, I really get into it when I watch my son play soccer. That's not the confession. That's the preamble. And sometimes getting into it means that I complain about a bad call. And a week ago, um, <laughs> we were at this game, and they were playing this team, and our coach, and the whole, he's like in this junior academy pride soccer thing, and they try to have him play teams that are a level above them to push them. And so they were playing a team that was like literally pushing them. And it was this Denver team, and there's this one kid who maybe he's already hit his growth spurt, and he was just shoving all the kids. And there was one moment where he was right there with my son, and he just went boom, and like full on, like just obvious as the day, like just boom. And Jonas just falls down to the turf. And I just kept quiet and said, no, I did not. I erupted before I knew what was coming out of my mouth, and I said, come on, 
I had my hands up like this, and I said, you got to be kidding me. No call from the ref, you know. And I might have said one, just one other thing maybe, just like, oh, you know, like this. And the coach was across, this, across this, the field from us on the other sideline, and the coach did one of these to me. So I felt bad, and the ref was a young teenager, and so I wrote the coach in an email, and I said, I'm so sorry. I probably should have apologized to the ref too, but I wasn't sorry at the time. <laughs> he missed the call, and I didn't say that in the email. And, and the coach, who knows me, and he's a believer, instead of, you know, saying, oh, don't worry about it, he said, I appreciate your apology, I understand. He goes, however... It's always bad when the email goes, however, because as you said, these refs are human too. And it turned out that that was that ref's first game to ref. Oh, just drive the heart in me, knife in me, why don't you? And then he goes, but the great thing is, this is an opportunity for us to show the mercy of Jesus. <laughs> I mean, like, just take me down all the way now. <laughs> So anyway, that, there's that. There's my confession before you. I can't find the ref. If you know this ref, please convey my sincerest apologies. Often when we lose our cool, we justify it by pointing out someone else's foolishness. And so we say, well, I was right to get angry because they were wrong. And so our anger is justified because of someone else's foolishness. This is quite like what's happening in America today. In 1972, Lance Morrow wrote a, the cover essay for Time, and he called it The Two Americas. And Morrow was talking about the two Americas between the Nixon camp and the McGovern camp. And Last week, Peggy Noonan wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. I don't know if you follow this or you read Noonan's stuff. I, I don't keep up with her essays, but years ago I used to read her books. She was the speechwriter for Reagan, and, and she wrote a couple of just fabulous books on the Reagan years that are really wonderful, one of which was called When Character Was King, to which we all say, ah. But Noonan, in the Wall Street Journal last week, was commenting on Morrow's essay in 1972, and she said, the two Americas, when Morrow was writing about it, were pronounced but considerate to one another. And she talked with how Morrow could write with respect about the two different camps. And she recounted how even for her during the Reagan years, how she would write speeches for Reagan that would quote Democrat heroes. And that this was sort of the nice way to be, to unify. And she says today, the two Americas are more divided than ever. And I want to just read you a couple paragraphs from her op-ed in the, in the journal, in the Wall Street Journal. She said, policy demands have become maximalist. It's not enough that contraceptives be covered in the government-mandated plan. Now the nuns must conform. It's not enough to be sensitive to the effect of your words and language. Now you must be punished for saying or thinking the wrong thing. It's not enough that gay marriage is legal. You must be forced to bake the cake. It won't do that attention be paid to scientific arguments for the environment. America must upend itself with Green New Deals or be judged to not care about children. Nothing can be moderate or incremental. Everything must be sweeping and definitive. It is also maximalist and bullying. 
In that environment, people start to think that giving an inch is giving a yard, and so they won't budge. You don't even get credit for being extreme in your views, but mild in your manner. In the way that people used to say that Barry Goldwater, some of you will know that name, was called both extreme and mild. Now you must be extreme in your manner, or it doesn't count. You're not one of us. This is the world that we live in where it's not enough to be differentiated. It's not enough to have convictions. Now you cannot even budge. It's not enough to have strong views. You must have a strong manner. Now it's not enough to have a value. You must be extreme in how you defend it. Otherwise, you're no longer one of us. As I read this piece from Noonan, I thought, again, our anger is justified when someone else is the fool in our eyes. As soon as you decide that the other person is a fool, then your anger is righteous. God is on the side of my anger. In fact, God shares my anger. Because look, those fools. This is exactly the story in 1 Samuel 25. We're going to meet this morning the fool, the madman, and the beautiful lady wisdom. So follow with me in 1 Samuel 25, verses 1 through 3. This is classic Hebrew storytelling where the scene is set for us. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, which I suppose might be the modern equivalent of, uh, what, a millionaire? Uh, he was a lot in his 401k. And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. Again, this is classic Hebrew storytelling because he's introducing us to the characters, telling us only the thing that the storyteller wants us to focus on, right? So what do we know about Nabal? He's rich. Now Abigail, the woman was discerning and beautiful, wise and beautiful, and the man was harsh and badly behaved, and he was a Calebite. Now, let's keep going in the story as we meet the characters. Meet the fool. Meets the fool. His name is Nabal. Verse 4. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house. And peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. In other words, your guys were around us, and rather than act like the rogue kind of guys that, we, that you think we are, we're not. We, we didn't. We didn't jump them. We didn't steal their stuff. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes. This is, a bit, this is David doing some uh, bargaining here. This is a little bit of quid pro quo. Like, we didn't do the expected thing of vandalizing and, 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 and roguery and all this. But, but, so help us out. For we come to you on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. Does this seem like a reasonable request? From what you can tell, from your knowledge of ancient Israelite sheep keeping. Yes? Okay, great. Now, verse 9, this is Nabal's response. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? 
<laughs> I mean, I love this. Like, this whole book has been telling us who David is. Like, you don't think that if you killed your wor- the representative of your worst enemy, Goliath, and people were singing songs about that, you don't think Nabal knew who David was? You don't think Nabal understood that he could carry on his sheep herding business because David had defeated the enemy and so now Nabal could operate in peace? You don't think Nabal knew who David was? But this is a classic fool's response. Who's David? Who's David? Who is the son of Jesse? And then he goes, you know, there are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. I mean, this is like the Old Testament version of millennials. There are many who are breaking away from their masters. You know young people these days. That's what Nabal is saying. Who is David? Come on, everybody's breaking away. Yeah, seems like all the rage. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? (laughs) Should I give my hard-earned money to these millennials who slack off and don't do anything? These slackers. You've never heard that argument before, have you? It's like, it's like what we say, right? Oh, they just want handouts. These people don't even want to work hard. Why should we give them money when I've worked for my thing? and You haven't worked at all. Nabal is articulating the classic angry conservative. Years ago, Martin Luther King was asked by a journalist, don't you believe in pulling yourself up by your bootstraps? And don't you believe it's right to work hard? And Dr. King is so poised in his response. You can find this video. They were, it was floating around a couple days ago on the anniversary of his passing. And he said, I absolutely believe in that. And I believe that a, a person should be rewarded for their hard work. And he says, but it's a cruel thing to say to a man, pull yourself up by your bootstraps when you've taken away his boots. He starts to outline the years of the deck being tilted against African Americans in our country and then saying, and now you're telling us to just work hard and do whatever as if we're all starting from the same level ground. But Nabal, he doesn't care about the history. He doesn't care about the story. All Nabal knows is the rhetoric he's been hearing in the echo chamber of his own mind. Nabal's been watching cable news. Lots of servants are separating from their masters these days. And why should I give my hard-earned money to this vagabond, this moocher? Now, meet the madman. As the story goes on, David hears this response. And so in verse 12, so David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword, get ready to fight. And every man of them strapped on his sword, and David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage they are preparing for war. Now skip down to verse 21. Now David had said, surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness. You see what David's doing? He's doing the same thing. Nabal says, who is this David? And David says, this fellow I don't even know who this guy is now. 
has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. So what are you going to do, David, if he's returned evil for good? What are you going to do? God do so to the enemies of David and more. Also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Now, there's several problems with David's response. One is that David begins to assume that God is on the side of his wrath. David begins to assume that his anger is justified and God is on my side. He's, he's swearing by God's name. Well, may God do to me. Except, and this is the second thing, he doesn't say me. He starts talking about himself in the third person. <laughs> may God do to David. You know, like, you are David. Yes, but it's more dramatic when I refer to myself in the third person. That's how you know you're losing your mind. And David starts making hasty vows. May God do to the enemies. If I do not, you know. Listen, what was the beginning of Saul's demise? You remember Saul making a hasty vow? You remember Saul saying that if his soldiers ate any food, he would kill them? Now you're, all of a sudden you're in the story and you're like, oh no, David, this is how it starts, bro. Start making hasty vows. Referring to yourself in third person, it's all downhill. Now you recognize, oh, we don't read 1 Samuel and say David is the hero, be like David. We read 1 Samuel and we think everybody's a sinner. And now you see even David acting like a madman. I wonder if this is what Jesus had in mind in the Sermon on the Mount, our gospel reading this morning, when he said, you who say to your brother, Raka, you fool, you are guilty of murder. Why? Because Jesus knows the more we turn someone else into a fool, the more we become a murderer in our hearts. You want hate and anger to grow? Start dehumanizing someone else. Start convincing yourself that this person, this thing, this per this is the fool. And so Jesus links the language of fool with the rhetoric of anger and murder. I wonder if Jesus is thinking about this story as soon as David starts to do. But thank God there is a woman in this story. Have you ever been in a room of angry men, and you thought, just somebody, can somebody just calm down here, you know? For me on that soccer field, it's my wife going, <clears throat> <laughs> Abigail steps into the scene. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. We're going to read a long chunk of the story here. Stay with me. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your eyes and hear the words of your servant. Let not the, my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for his name is, so is he. And you're thinking, what does his name mean? Nabal is his name and folly is with him. Nabal means fool. And Abigail is saying, he's aptly named Please ignore my husband, the fool. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. In other words, if, I, if they had come to me, I would have had a different response. Let me help. Now then, as my Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt, 
I think this is a bit of a technical term to refer to the kind of sin that David would have incurred had he slaughtered Nabal's house. And from saving with your own hand, maybe this is meant to contrast God's salvation and our own attempts to save. Now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God, and the lies of your enemies he shall sling out as far from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood. You see what she's doing? She's appealing to David's legacy. She's saying someday you're going to be the prince and you don't want to have this on your conscience that you shed blood without cause. It's a very delicate way of saying you've lost your ever-loving mind and you will regret this. <laughs> but you see how discerning and, 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 and kind of subtle Abigail is doing this. She's appealing to David. She's calling him my Lord. She's not denying the circumstances. She's saying, Nabal is a fool. But don't you do something that you will regret and that will taint your legacy. Lady Wisdom is calling out in the streets. Who will hear her voice? And she says, without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. The wisdom tradition in the Old Testament often personifies wisdom in the feminine form. In the book of Proverbs, when wisdom is given a, 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 a personification, it's as a lady calling in the streets. Proverbs 8 describes wisdom as being there with the Lord in the creation of the world. Now, I, I don't know why this is specifically. And I certainly don't want to make broad brush gender stereotypes. But I think we can all think of scenarios when the cooler head or the voice in the room was a woman. You might be able to recall a situation where that was actually wisdom there and the hot heads start to boil. And here's Abigail as this embodiment of lady wisdom. Abigail is a picture of what wisdom looks like. And it is beautiful. It is beautiful. We're told in the story that Abigail is beautiful and, and there's something about that that matters to the story. And maybe even the way the whole story is set up, it's to say, look, foolishness is ugly. Anger is ugly. But wisdom is beautiful. Wisdom is beautiful. It's interesting because Go back with me now to verse 34 and see how David responds. Verse 34 of 1 Samuel 25, For surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, this is David talking now, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had, been, uh, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. If you hadn't come and restrained me, 
I would have killed them all. I would have killed them all. And then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice. It's a remarkable phrase to say. I have obeyed your voice. David could have said, who are you? Do you know who I am? But he understood this is wisdom talking. I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. When the first followers of Jesus were trying to find a way to talk about who this risen Christ is, they reached for different kinds of Old Testament traditions. One, one was they pulled from the Messiah tradition, i.e. the David storyline. They pulled a thread from the King David storyline. They said, Jesus is the true Messiah. He's the true and better David. We've already talked about that here. But you know what else they pulled from? They pulled from the wisdom tradition. When you read Colossians 1, Colossians 2, the wisdom of God, is in, the treasures of wisdom are in Jesus Christ. Even the phrase in Colossians 1 that calls Jesus the firstborn of creation. That language is used in wisdom tradition between Old Testament and New Testament times. And so what... What these followers of Jesus are saying is, look, Proverbs 8 already gave us this hint that there was someone with Yahweh co-creating the world. Could it be that this someone has a name and his name is Jesus? And so whatever we used to say about wisdom, we now say about Jesus. The technical term for this is wisdom Christology. But the point for all of us this morning is that Jesus is the incarnation of wisdom. Abigail embodies it, she represents it, however, in, in whatever small measure. But Jesus, he's wisdom incarnate. This is something like what John is trying to say in the beginning of his gospel when he says, in the beginning was the logos, the great wisdom that orders the world. And the logos was with God and the logos was God. And then he said, in Jesus, the logos became flesh. The wisdom of God actually became flesh. I was thinking if the gospel writers ever give us a scene that looks like 1 Samuel 25, and the one that came to mind is the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Judas is like Nabal. Judas is the fool. He's betrayed Jesus. He said, I don't know if there's anything in it for me betrays Jesus and the soldiers come and how does Peter respond? Strap on your sword boys, here we go. And Peter takes his sword and cuts the ear of Malchus, the, high priest, the servant of the high priest, cuts his ear off, the fool and the madman. And Jesus says, fellas, I've seen your fo foolishness, I've seen your anger, now meet wisdom. And Jesus says, put your sword away. Heals the man's ear. That's what wisdom looks like. Always inserting itself in order to save. Jesus is the wisdom that saves. Jesus is the wisdom that saves. Sometimes we, we think that in our conversations, we really only have two options. The option A is get in the mix of the conversation or the argument or the social issue and get in there with all your rage, just like Noonan said in her Wall Street Journal piece. Or 
We say, oh, I'm so fatigued by all this outrage, I'm just going to say and do nothing. It's not that wisdom is a middle ground. It's that wisdom is a better way. Wisdom says, I will go in the midst of this, and I will offer myself sacrificially, and I will try to live in a way that heals and saves. So often we find ourselves, maybe it's parents, maybe on a small scale, it's kids fighting and parents are like, I've just had it. I'm not going to referee any more fights. But maybe (laughs) there's a way to say, how do I enter the situation with wisdom that saves? That I don't ignore, nor do I get in with more rage and match evil for evil. But how do I inhabit this space with a kind of wisdom that saves? Maybe you're thinking about that in your work environment where everybody's cutthroat and this person's vying for the same promotion as you and you think, how how do I step in the midst of this with a wisdom that saves? There's something beautiful about Abigail that really points toward Jesus. Read those verses again, verse 24. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Abigail didn't need to say that. She could have just said, Nabal's a fool. David's going to kill all the males. I'm out of here. She says, On me be the guilt. And David said, Abigail, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. I can't help but see in that story that Jesus is the true and better Abigail. Jesus stood in the place of our folly and took the wrath of judgment so that we could be saved. Jesus stood in the place of our foolishness, took the wrath of judgment, so that we can be saved. And the goal that Jesus has for us, the dream in his mind, is for a people that are not just saved, but who become these ministers of reconciliation in the world, who become ambassadors of this kind of wisdom. My call to us this morning is to behold the beauty of Jesus' kind of wisdom and to become those kinds of people. Did you bow your heads this morning? Thank you for joining us today at New Life Downtown. You can return to our website at newlifechurch.org downtown to find out more about the church and how you can get connected. You can email us with any questions that you have. We look forward to getting to know you a little bit better. Feel free to follow us on social media as well. We're ready to welcome you into the family of God at New Life Downtown.